Good to have you here this morning. Thanks for joining us. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the, uh, the Greenhouse, which is our college and, and uh, young professional ministry. And, um, and that's them over there. And um, if you're in that demographic, I'd, I'd love to meet you afterward. Or you can come meet some of these other people. Great um, ministry that God's doing in and through this church. And um, I've just spent 10 weeks uh, with a mission that the Greenhouse and, and New Hope are a part of up in the uh, northeastern part of our country called LT. And again, it's kind of focused on that demographic. So if you'd ever be interested in learning more about what that could look like for you to, to do a summer like that with us, uh, you want to come kick the tires, you can email me at joe at nhchurch.com or you can just come talk to me. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we just thank you for all those words that we just got to sing about you. That we completely trust in what Jesus has done for us. All sufficient merit, nothing that we've done, but all that you have done for us by going to the cross for us. We thank you that you have made us alive and that you want to work in us and you want to you accomplish great purposes in and through our lives for your glory. And um, we just thank you for that. We pray that today you'd help us to be attentive to the things that you want us to, to learn. And God, maybe that's different even than what my words would be. And I pray that, that those things would be elevated and then my things would, be, would, be, uh, would become much smaller. And God, we always pray that you would help us to be doers and not just hearers. And so we, we ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was prepping for this message I was, uh, that I've titled United By and For the Gospel, I was reminded about the way of the muskox. Y'all know what a muskox is, right? Kind of massive creatures, real hairy. Uh, they live in very cold environments, and they have horns. Um, males can reach up to 800 pounds. The imagery of, of how they work together is one that I want etched into your mind when you think about how God wants his church to walk in unity. They have an extremely interesting strategy for protecting each other and their young when attacked. One of their greatest predators is the Arctic wolf. And when a pack of wolves threatens the safety of the herd, these large animals actually align themselves side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with their heads pointed out toward the danger. They go shoulder to shoulder and they circle up, putting their young in the middle where they're the safest. They work together in a united way as a team to protect each other and their young. That's their mission. Their mission is simply survival. But that mission influences how they live and work together. And their strategy is incredibly effective. They are able to withstand the attack of a wolf pack by being of one mind standing side by side. And when you hear that, you might hear echoes of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. We're getting back into the swing of things as we continue to look at this letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote to this church. Mark has this week off, and so I'm pumped to open up this letter and challenge us with God's word. The series I'm working through is called Joy Regardless, where because of Jesus and his incredible gospel message, we've been invited into a life unlike any that the world could ever offer us. We can be people of joy regardless of the ups and downs of life. That's incredible news, especially if you're someone like me who can get kind of fussy when life zigs when I wanted it to zag, which, if you're like me, happens all the time. 
There's a song that shot to the top of the charts in the last couple weeks called Richmond North of Richmond. And it's a song that expresses angst about a world system that doesn't work for the working class or pretty much anyone. And as that song has been played over and over, all I can think about is that Jesus offers us a life marked by joy regardless of what the Richmond north of Richmond do or don't do. So today we get the chance to be challenged to live in a way that's different than how our world functions. And Paul is going to show us that we are united by the gospel and we're united for the gospel. So if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what Paul wrote. This is what we read. He says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And if you remember from the last time that we were together, Paul was exhorting this church to follow his example because there were many who were trying to lead them astray. The world is full of wolves who want to come in and devour the flock. He said that many walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus. He warned them about this group of people called the Judaizers. Real quick, these were a people who focused on a false gospel, a gospel marked by circumcision as a way of making yourself right with God. It's a works-based religion. They followed Paul around and tried to entice people away from the truth. Okay, but as we move into chapter 4, there's a shift that happens. Now he's changed his tone. Chapter 3 was exhorting. Chapter 4 starts with this incredible encouragement. Paul writes with the warmth of a close friend now. He calls them brothers. He highlights that we are a part of the same family. Like how often do you go through your week thinking about your brothers and sisters in Christ as part of your family? Family is huge and it's foundational to unity. We have so much in common. We share the same spiritual relationship to God the Father. We have been adopted into his family, chosen to be sons and daughters. The gospel unites us as brothers and sisters. Being a part of the same family is a big deal. He then says this, he says, whom I love and long for. Man, that's so cool to be loved and longed for. The Greek word for love is this word agapetos, and it means desirable, beloved, worthy of love, lovable. That's who you are. And the Greek word for long for is epipathetos, and it means greatly desired. This is an incredibly warm way of communicating, isn't it? I mean, don't you feel good if somebody says you're greatly loved and, and you're longed for? You really get to see how Paul feels about these people. If you know the New Testament, you know that Paul didn't feel this way about all the churches. Don't get me wrong, he loved all the churches. He was for all the churches that he was working with. But often there was, this, there was some challenging issues and, and struggles that pained him. This church was different. This church, I think, had a special place in his heart. And then he finished the, the trifecta of encouragement like this. He said, my joy and crown. 
Now, we know that joy is a strong theme in this, in this letter. I, I titled the whole series Joy Regardless, right? But Paul is saying something a little unique here in that these people were his joy. One, one scholar says this about the Philippian church being Paul's joy. He says this, he did not mean that they replaced the joy of the Lord, but rather that life was better because he knew them. They brought him joy even when he was awaiting trial. Further, their response to the gospel would bring him joy on judgment day. And the reference to these people being his crown was a reference to the fact that Paul looked forward to the reward that he was going to get from all the, the labor that he had spent with these people, laboring in their life and helping them grow up in their faith. And he ends verse 1 with this statement. He says this, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul has this incredible love for these people. He wanted what was best for them. He wanted to see them thrive in the faith, and so he exhorted them to stand firm in the Lord. The word there for stand firm in, in the Greek is the word steko, and it means just that. It means to stand firm. And the picture that comes to my mind would be one, that would come to their mind too, would be one of the a Roman army standing firm. What's fascinating is that a, a popular strategy that the Roman army employed looks very, very similar to that of the muskox. Maybe you've seen images of this before where the Roman soldiers would circle up and they would put their, their, their shield right down and they would hover around each other and they, it would make themselves impenetrable to the enemy. What's interesting about this illusion is that whether it's the muskox or the Roman army, there's a focused mission that directs actions. In other words, the mission unites. Paul was challenging this church to stand together unmoved as one man for the sake of the gospel. Together, shoulder to shoulder, pointed outward, united with a common purpose. And as this church was read this letter out loud, they would have connected this part of the letter back to chapter 1 and verse 27 where he wrote this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Sounds a lot like our muskox, right? Now we come to verse 2, where Paul is going to address the issue of unity even more directly. He wrote this. He said, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Believe it or not, we've gotten this far into this letter, and this is our first bump in the road. There's some issue going on between these two women in this church. We're not told what it is, what, what makes us think, uh, which makes us think it's not a, a, a disagreement over doctrine. Paul would most likely have dealt directly with a doctrinal issue. We know from Acts 16 that some of the earliest converts in this church were women. Lydia, maybe you're familiar with her. She was one of the first to come to faith in Jesus in this city. One thing we do know, it was a big enough issue that the church wrote to Paul about it. And I love what Richard Mellick says about this issue. He says this, on the one hand, its occurrence in a prominent place in this section of the epistle suggests that the problem had some significance. It was more than a passing disagreement. It had the potential of splitting the church into two groups. On the other hand, it occurs near the end of the epistle and is handled in a relatively soft manner. Apparently, it was not enough of a problem to cause Paul undue alarm. 
Paul had faith in the women themselves and the church's ability to correct the problem. Okay, so what do we do with verse 2? Well, first, we can see that Paul challenged these women to agree in the Lord. And really what Paul is saying to them and to us is that the gospel is what unites us. We're united in the Lord. We're united by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. See, if you've been with us for any amount of time here at New Hope, you would see that we would be talking about the gospel as foundational to all of life as a follower of Jesus. And because of the incredible love that we've experienced in the gospel, we turn around and we love each other, both those inside the church and those outside the church. The gospel molds and shapes who we are. It transforms us. Well, what is this gospel all about? It, the Bible, it would, we would look at it as the core message of, of the Bible. Essentially, uh, the gospel is good news. It's the good news that Jesus came to rescue us. People who were separated from God because of our wrongdoing. I, need, I needed to be rescued. I need to be rescued. God the Son became Jesus the man. He walked in complete dependence on God the Father. He lived a, a perfect life. He was the spotless Lamb of God that we sung about who took away the sin of the world. He was sacrificed for our sin. And so after Jesus lived a sinless life, he was falsely condemned and crucified between two hardened criminals. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he made a way. He is the way directly to the Father. He made a way for sinful people like you and me to be reconciled to holy, almighty God. And so when someone responds to what he did for them by trusting and believing in Jesus, they become children of God. And the result of this amazing grace is a life that now overflows with what it has experienced. And so because of the gospel, we've been united. Another place in the New Testament says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, listen to this, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so what the New Testament teaches us is that unity has already been established by the Holy Spirit. All who have been spiritually regenerated upon coming to faith in Jesus have the Holy Spirit residing in us. He created unity. We are commanded now to maintain that unity. I probably should have defined unity earlier in our time, but unity is simply this. It's togetherness. We're together in the Lord. We're together for the gospel. Unity is togetherness. It's not sameness. We stand together in the gospel. We don't have to be cookie cutter in our unity. In other words, you don't have to look like me. That's good news, right? Yeah. We don't have to all adhere to the same preferences. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine talked about open-handed issues and closed Handed issues. Open-handed issues are areas that aren't def defined clearly in the Bible. There's freedom in open-handed issues. You don't have to like country music. That's okay. That's your loss. 
You know, I don't like skinny jeans. That's your gain. I'm of age and I could enjoy an an alcoholic beverage. There's freedom. There are even open-handed issues related to church life. Like we would never want anyone at New Hope to feel like a second-class citizen if they weren't in a small group. Like we would, we highly encourage people to, to get into small groups. Um, we, we, would, we would think there's lots of benefits for you to be in a small group, but we would never look down on you because you aren't in a small group. Or doctrine, places for open-handedness and doctrine. Some would break fellowship over minor points of doctrine. I have friends that lean a certain way a little different than where I'm at. They have a little different theology or doctrine. But we still have fellowship. We still have unity. And those are what are some of the open-handed issues that, that we talk about. What about closed-handed issues? Well, I would define closed-handed issues as gospel-centric. These are salvific in nature. These would be anything that has to do with salvation. So anything that has to do with Jesus, who Jesus is, those are closed-handed like the deity of Jesus is a closed hand. That's a, that's a hill I'm willing to die on, all right? I'm going to die on that hill. Or like salvation. How does someone come to faith in Jesus? What does that look like? Closed-handed. Salvation by faith alone, closed-handed. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone, closed-handed. Those are hills I'm going to die on. What else? Well, any clear area clearly defined in Scripture that relates, again, to salvation. But you notice, my list was really long that was open-handed, and it was really short for what close-handed is. And so what does it take for us to be united? Well, I've got three things for you to think about. The first one is this, humility. Humility. Humility is realizing that you don't have it all together, and essentially you're not God. It's having an accurate view of yourself. You don't see the full picture. Humility also helps us to discern which hill is worth dying on. That's the first one. The second one is this, humility. No, no, seriously. The second one is like the first one. It's humility because humility helps us to develop perspective. Perspective says that we lay down our smaller issues for the greater issues. Perspective says that I'm going to major in the majors and minor in the minors. I'm going to put aside trivial issues so that gospel and eternal issues can be elevated. We need to grow in wisdom as a church and as God's people. Wisdom will guide us as we interact with people who think and act differently than we do. In fact, think about this. In this church right now, there's people in this room who are 80 years old and there's people in this room who are 18 years old. Think about how different you are. Think about culturally how different you are. It is a miracle that God puts this radically different group of people together for a common purpose. Okay, the third one, humility. (laughs) Remember, this is the third one, remember that you're in a spiritual battle. One of the evil one's key strategies is division. He loves to divide the church. And he has done an amazing job at it. There are over 45,000 denominations worldwide. 
How many of those, of those divisions came about because of an, a disagreement about the color of the carpeting in the church or the color of the walls? Way too many. The Holy Spirit created unity amongst us. We need to maintain it. Okay, finally, verse 3. Yes, Paul says, I, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul starts by appealing to these two women first. And then in verse 3, he asks this, this true companion to come alongside these women as a mediator. We aren't told exactly who this person is. The footnotes of my ESV translation identifies this person as loyal Sisyphus. Or in the Greek, because no one could say his name, they called him True Yoke Fellow. But what, do you, what, what we do know this, Paul appealed to this person to help mediate the problem. It's possible that he might have been the pastor of this church, but everyone knew who he was and his right to get involved as part of the solution. Now we know in verse two that Paul appealed to these two women to pursue unity based on the gospel. Now, Paul highlights the fact that we are to pursue unity for the sake of the gospel. These were two women who labored side by side with Paul. In other words, they were fully engaged in holding out the, the gospel message to others alongside of Paul in his work. We don't know what happened, but somehow these two women took their eyes off the mission and turned inward. They were the muskox who were shoulder to shoulder because of the gospel and, and for the sake of the gospel, and then something happened. We aren't told what happened. Maybe Eodia was a, a Michigan State fan, and she was the more mature and the, the more godly and Syntyche, she was a Michigan fan. Just joking. But maybe Eodia said something that was insensitive. She, she didn't mean it to be insensitive. Maybe it was something about the way that her face looked in a conversation. It just was just misread. Maybe the two had a misunderstanding develop between them. Maybe they allowed something small to fester in their friendship. Who knows what the issue was? But we know this, it happens all the time in the church. And it happens all the time outside the church too. When we're on mission together, we don't have time to squabble about less important things. When we get distracted from our mission, the likelihood of infighting goes way up. And just like at the muskox, when these women were engaged with the enemy, they were working together as a team. Their goal was to fight shoulder to shoulder for a common purpose. There's no time for disagreements. There's a mission to be engaged in. For the muskox, the mission might be protecting the calves from wolves. But at the end of the day, they are united around a common mission and focus. And the same is to be true for Jesus' church. I don't know what happened to Yodi and Syntyche, but somehow they went from striving side by side for the faith of the gospel to butting heads over an issue. And these women aren't alone in their struggle, are they? Anyone here ever wrestle with unity? Of course. 
We all have. I have. I remember getting reproved by a pastor friend and mentor of mine years ago. I was struggling with one of my co-pastors, and this is not in this, this local context, so Dave, you can be, kind of take, you can just relax, even though uh, Dave's put up with me for a long time, and he's an awesome uh, co-pastor. This other guy that I'm talking about was a great, is a great guy as well. Servant of servants, so many wonderful character qualities, faithful as the day is long, but he struggled with laziness. And one time I was venting to my mentor friend and I thought he was going to agree with me. And he did the exact opposite. He reproved me so strongly and told me that I was, it was like I was missing tools in my toolbox for how to come alongside someone who was weak in an area that wasn't a struggle for me. And I got all kinds of struggles and issues. But that's just not necessarily one of mine. And in his rebuke, he nipped division in the bud. See, unity isn't a peripheral issue. Our unity is central to our mission. Did you know that? Unity in the church isn't just a nice sounding concept. It's pivotal to the mission of God. Jesus couldn't have been clearer about how unity among believers would affect our ability to influence the world with the gospel. In John 17, when Jesus prayed what scholars refer to as the high priestly prayer, listen to what he prayed regarding unity. He said this, I don't ask for for these only, talking about the, the disciples that were there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see that? Jesus prayed for those who will believe in him. That's us. That we would be one, united by the gospel and for the gospel. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. So part of why Paul addressed Yodia and Syntyche was that he knew that unity was and is central for the sake of the gospel. So really the church doesn't have a lot of options. We either can maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, which we would do because of the gospel's influence on our life and for the sake of the gospel going forward, or we break unity and we break the heart of God. It's the heart of God. I mean, it was the the thing Jesus prayed for, his people. And yet infighting and division has plagued the church since its conception. So my question for you as we draw to a close is this, what will you do as a result of what you've heard today? Is there someone you need to talk to in order to maintain the unity of the spirit? Is there someone you need to forgive? Do you need a third party mediator? I mean, we see right here that it's normal to have a mediator. Some of the clearest teaching in the scriptures relates to unity and unbroken fellowship. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that if we get the sense that we've wronged somebody, that we're to go quickly to them and make it right. 
And then in Matthew 18, he, he taught us that if, 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 if somebody wrongs us, that we're to go to them and, and share with them how they've sinned against us. In both scenarios, the key is to go quickly to the other person. So my question for you is this, is there someone you need to go to in this church? In my spiritual upbringing, we use the, the phrase keeping short accounts. And the idea there is that if, if something happens, you don't let it just kind of like grow and, 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 and ooze and fester and get worse. You go and you talk about it. You put it out there. You get it out there. You bring it into the light. You, you let, you, you, and then you get a chance to, to clarify. Paul ends verse three like this. He says, he mentions all these names and then says, and all whose names are written in the book of life. Anytime I see that phrase, names written in the book of life, I, I gotta talk about it for just a moment. The imagery that um, New Testament writers use, this, this imagery that they use, is, it's just profound. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus has their name written in the book of life. And what I love most about this book is that God uses permanent ink when he writes your name in his book. You didn't write your name in his book, did you? No, he did. He bought you out of slavery. He cleaned you up. He brought you into his family in a permanent adoption status, and he holds you in the palm of his hands. You are his. And that's why we are people who are to have joy that overflows from our lives, because nothing can separate you from Jesus. And that's why we're to live united, because God has been so good to us in his gospel, united by the gospel and united for the gospel. And so how can we commit to being like the muskox and stand shoulder to shoulder as we engage the wolves of this age and as we hold out the gospel of peace to a lost world around us? We're going to keep this thought process going as we move into a, a time of communion. This is the perfect setup for what communion is all about. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us, and we do it together as one body, as a family that lives shoulder to shoulder, pointed outward, laboring side by side for the sake of the gospel. And so our tradition at New Hope is we typically will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and look at some, some of that section of scripture that Paul talks about there, starting in verse 23. This is what he writes. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the gospel to each other. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself, which is what we're going to do here for a couple moments. Then, and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I think part of what Paul was saying there is as we discern the body, we start to think, yeah, is there a place where I need to like go to somebody and make something right? Maybe I recognize I might have said something or hurt them. I kind of feel like there's a rift between us. Or maybe we think like, hey, I recognize that I've been wronged probably by this person. I need to go to them. And so when you come up to pick up the elements, there's four tables in the front and there's two in back. And I don't know why, but everybody wants to go to the back. I want to encourage you to come to the front. And you're going to pick up uh, both cups together. And then you're going to take them back. And we're going to take a couple minutes, minutes to uh, reflect and process, especially, again, where we may need to make something right or whatever the Spirit reveals to you about where you need to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then I'll come back and we'll take communion together.